Hello and thank you for joining us at this month's Climate Crisis Advisory Group public meeting. Now we are just three, we've just got three days left until COP26 kicks off in Glasgow. And there's never been a more urgent opportunity to influence and deliver a safer future for our world. For the first time since the landmark Paris Agreement measures took effect, climate campaigners, world leaders, NGOs and representatives of civil society will be gathering in significant numbers to generate important conversation and commitments at the UN summit. This year, the core objective is to find a pathway to net zero emissions. And with the strong leadership, the summit offers a real and tangible opportunities to tackle a number of climate issues. But will the formal negotiations taking place go far enough to ensure a hospitable planet for future generations? Well, it's clear what's at stake, but how else can we take advantage of the broader moment of COP26? How should world leaders be making the most of the opportunity that it brings? With their latest report, CCAG members have set out five clear climate commitments beyond the current scope of COP26 that must be made in order to genuinely meet net zero emissions targets. If you'd like to read these commitments, you can download the full report from CCAG's Twitter at Climate Crisis AG or the CCAG website, ccag.earth. Now we're just days to go. This report and discussion is absolutely crucial. So David, you're going to be running us through the report's key recommendations before we hear from Professor Lavinia Rajamani and Professor Nerali Abraham. So David, over to you. So David, can you unmute yourself, please? Before we go into detail about the five climate commitments that we as CCAG believe are needed to give humanity a manageable future, it's important to note the context surrounding COP26. While the summit offers a number of opportunities for the global community to accelerate meaningful action on climate change, it is, however, a limited process, and it's a process that all originates from COP21 in Paris in 2015. Of course, we want to state right away that we support strongly deep and rapid emissions reduction, and that should emerge from this COP26 process. Now, with legal and formal requirements to follow, we've got to look beyond what can be formally delivered within these limitations. And so I'm going to focus on the moment of the COP meetings which have huge potential to deliver important climate commitments beyond the COP agenda. We've got to ensure that the summit will go far enough to ensure a hospitable planet. That's why we have set out these five clear commitments. These include, and if I could have a slide, I don't know, it would help perhaps, agreeing to end the use of coal, oil and gas in an orderly, efficient, rapid and fair manner. Secondly, agreeing to put a price on carbon emissions across markets, economies and geographies, together with government obligations and regulations to stimulate the speed of transition. Thirdly, globally taxing aviation and shipping fuels in line with other fossil fuels. Fourthly, agreeing amongst developed countries to fund greenhouse gas removal at scale to bring carbon dioxide equivalent greenhouse gases down from over 500 parts per million today counting as we should do methane to around 350 parts per million or less by the end of the century therefore going beyond let me stress this the net zero objective and then fifthly conducting and, and obtaining an agreement from developed economies 
to fund the development and rollout of methods to repair the Arctic Circle so that the Arctic Sea is once again covered with ice during the polar summer. This buys time while emissions reduction and greenhouse gas removal are all operated at scale. It's only by going beyond the formal negotiations and taking full advantage of the COP26 moment that we can meet net zero emissions targets and then go beyond that, making the necessary changes to guarantee a safe and hospitable world. Enough from me, I'm going to pass you straight over to Lavanya uh, Rajamani and then uh, on to Nerali Abram. Thank you. Thank you, Sir David. I'd like to speak briefly to the context that you set out at the start of your opening remarks. It's important, as you noted, to draw a distinction between COP26 as a UN negotiating process and as a moment at which the world's attention is trained on global climate action or lack thereof. Uh, the UN negotiating process can only deliver on issues that are on its agenda. Even, and even that is challenging with 197 states at the negotiating table pulling in different directions. But as Sir David mentioned, global reckoning on climate change, however, signals from this conference can drive the pace of systems transitions that states need to embark on to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. The UN negotiating process itself is tasked with completing the set of rules, the Paris rule book, as it were, to operationalize the 2015 Paris Agreement. And in particular, the focus is on the rules on markets, and we need to get these rules right so as to ensure that emissions reductions are real and that there's robust accounting for emissions transfers. As a moment for global reckoning on climate change, however, COP26 plays a crucial role, as Sir David has already uh, alluded to. The science is clearer than ever before. The IPCC's latest report released in August um, shows unequivocal, unequivocal evidence that human influence has warmed the atmosphere. There's already 1.07 degrees centigrade warming since pre-industrial levels, and there's widespread pervasive and unprecedented impacts that are in evidence. And the climate change regime is clearly not on track to averting this. The latest nationally determined contributions that have been submitted by parties were synthesized by the Climate Change Secretariat, and the report was released earlier this week. Um, these, this report suggests that um, if all the current nationally determined contributions are faithfully implemented, GHG emissions in 2030 will be 15.9% above the 2010 level. And uh, the IPCC's 1.5 degree report made it clear that CO2 emissions needed to be 45% below 2010 by 2030 and to reach net zero by 2050. So clearly we are far off track. The UNEP gap report, the 2020 edition released this week, suggests that we will have 2.7 degrees temperature increase under current contributions. So if COP26 is a moment of reckoning on climate change, it must acknowledge how far off track current contributions are, as well as to generate a very clear sense of momentum and political will to put the world back on track or on track to 1.5 degrees that is identified aspirationally right now in the Paris Agreement, but is very much the focus of, of our current efforts. And such course correction cannot happen without system-wide transitions across the world, which in turn requires ambitious commitments on finance and support for developing countries. The UK COP presidency released a climate finance delivery plan earlier this week, charting a pathway to delivery of the $100 billion US dollars a year by 2020 um, commitment, which is only on uh, track to be delivered by 2023. So obviously there needs to be a significant scale up and step up of efforts on finance and support for developing countries as well. As so David mentioned, there has been uh, far more uh, traction on net zero targets, net zero GHG and CO2 targets, mid-century targets, but there are serious issues of credibility, accountability and fairness in relation to these long-term targets. And one of the signals that COP26 could do, uh, could send, is to ask states to anchor their net zero targets in the Paris Agreement architecture, explain how their national contributions chart a pathway to mid-century net zero, and how their net zero goals and timelines are actually keeping with their differentiated responsibilities. Some countries do need to get there sooner than mid-century to create room for others, like perhaps 
uh, large developing countries to get there later. So in conclusion, COP26 must complete the Paris rulebook so as to fully operationalize the Paris Agreement and trigger significantly enhanced national action and financial commitments and instill credibility, accountability, and fairness in relation to long-term targets so as to ensure we have a fighting chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Thank you. Thanks, Lavanya. Um, so I just wanted to, um, to give a, a really brief example um, from Australia um, as an example of the type of commitments that we might be seeing coming out of developed countries um, and the position that they put us in terms of meeting those temperature targets um, for the Paris Agreement. Uh, so Australia um, in 2015 um, made its um, NDC for a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 of between 26 and 28%. Uh, so far, it's resisted um, increasing the ambition of that um, 2030 target. And so that really places it um, towards the back of the ambition of the developing countries. Over the past two days, we have seen Australia finally adopt a position of net zero by 2050. This is something that we can expect to see coming to Glasgow. Um, it's a change that um, we actually saw flagged um, in the conservative media within Australia a couple of months ago, saying that they were no longer going to be resistant to the idea of net zero by 2050. Um, but what we've seen in the Australian government adopting this plan is that there actually isn't much of a plan behind how they're actually going to get to net zero by 2050. And in particular, their plan actually specifically states that they will be continuing to export, export coal and gas through to 2050 and beyond. So much of their plan does not actually rely on emission reductions. And that's the first thing that we actually really need to see for meaningful action in addressing climate change. Um, so we need to see those emission reductions, and by reduction we need, uh, we mean by that almost complete elimination, not just a small reduction, then we can do the rest by technology. Um, so there's other aspects of their plan, um, including a very strong reliance on offsets, and particularly carbon soil offsets that seem quite um, unfeasible in terms of the scale that it is being implemented. But beyond that, um, Australia reaching net zero by 2050 actually um, isn't what is needed if we are going to stay um, within the 1.5 or 2 degree temperature limits of the Paris Agreement. So if Australia is to keep that target of only reducing emissions by 26 to 28% by 2030, what that would mean is that Australia would have actually used its more than its entire share of the global budget for limiting warming to 1.5 degrees by about 2027, so before 2030. Um, if they keep that 26 to 28% reduction by 2030, um, then to, to stay within their fair share of limiting warming to two degrees, they then have to reach net zero by 2037. So that's the scientific evidence based very much on the simple maths of the remaining carbon budget. Um, it, it does have an assumption in there as to what is Australia's fair share, um, which in the past the Australian government has calculated at 0.97% of the remaining budget. Um, that can be argued as to, to whether that's actually reasonable when Australia has 0.33% of the global population um, and is already a developed country. Um, so there's a number of issues there. But one thing I'd also like to say, though, is that despite what we see at the, the federal, the national government level and, and the, the apparent lack of good commitments there, actually every state and territory within Australia has for a long time already had a net zero um, plan to get their by 2050 or earlier, and many of those states are already ramping up their ambition to a 50% reduction by 2030. So I think that, that shows us the possibility of working with these smaller entities, even where we have national governments that, that are slow and dragging their heels in terms of the action that we need to see. And thank you. Thank you very much, um, Professor Abraham, and also Professor Rajamani and Sir David. Um, I can't... I, I can't recommend that report enough. It is an absolutely excellent piece of work. And um, if you, for me, one of the overriding principles in it, apart from the process of COP26 and the moment, 
is those principles of reduce, repair, and remove. Okay, it's time for us to hand over to questions from the public. And our first question comes from uh, Alan Rusbridger, former editor of The Guardian. And uh, his question is, deniers and outright climate skeptics are now fewer uh, are now fewer in the public debate. But after the eye-watering cost of COVID, the argument has switched to cost. We simply can't afford it. How do we switch the argument to the cost of not acting? Um, I'm going to throw this over, first of all, to Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh, and then I think Professor Mark Maslin can, can take it afterwards as well. Yes, thanks very much uh, for that question. I, I, I mean, I agree. I think the, the, the days are gone when we hear so much from um, people denying that we're having an influence on climate, and now it's really about uh, is this a significant issue in the grand scheme of things, and if it is, what should we do and how should we pay for it and we've seen some high profile debates about that um for me i think um it is about spelling out that while there are costs to acting there are also costs to not taking action and i think crucially as well it's also about spelling out that there aren't only benefits to taking uh action to mitigate and adapt to climate change but also many of those actions have wider benefits so they improve health they save in the uk the nhs many billions of pounds if we improve our air quality in cities for example get people out of cars those are tangible and quantifiable financial benefits as well as benefits that will improve people's quality of life so i think it's about spelling out those very tangible benefits and, and many of which are economic and i think um yeah mark also has some impressive numbers that he can state thank you lorraine Thank you. Yes, I was going to say, I think we have to really push back against this because it is clear that many organizations and lobby groups are now arguing that it's going to cost us too much to go to net zero. So if we start off with the costs. Hard nosed economics says that if we don't deal with climate change and we don't go to net zero as quick as possible, it's going to cost us by 2050 20% of global GDP to deal with the impact. If we deal with it now, it could cost us perhaps up to 1%. That's just the direct costs. And then as Lorraine said, there's all these savings. So the really interesting thing is, of course, if we stopped uh, subsidizing fossil fuels, according to the International Energy Authority, that will save us at least $2 trillion a year. That's the same as the GDP of the United Kingdom. And then there's all these other benefits. As Lorraine said, 8 million people die due to air pollution in the world every year. We removed coal-fired power stations and basically petrol engines and diesel engines in cities. We could save a lot of those lives. And that saves a huge amount of money on healthcare costs. And therefore, actually, according to the down draw project, if we did net zero properly and with really good thought out policies, we could save $46 trillion. That's half the GDP of the world. Incredible stats. Thank you so much, Lorraine and, and Mark. Um, I mean, trillions of dollars a year saved and millions of lives saved as well. It, it, it's a no brainer. Um, so David, I feel like, yeah, I think you want to get in on this as well. Yes, I, I also want to just mention that there are real opportunities for wealth creation from the transition. Every post-fossil fuel uh, technology that is introduced into societies is a wealth creation opportunity. And this is recognized around the world. Here in Britain, as we've stopped using coal, we've gone heavily onto offshore wind. And it turns out that offshore wind is at least as cheap as a new coal-fired power station being put up. And so what, what I want to say is the whole world benefits from what Germany, Britain and other European nations have already been through. We've been really funding these programs through uh, feed-in tariffs and their equivalent over the last 25 years. And the net result is that renewable energy systems are now considerably cheaper around the world and for many, many parts of the world, very competitive with fossil fuel-based systems. 
Thank you so much to David for that. Um, such vital information, which I think is so important that we share. But as I said, we've got plenty of questions today, so I'm going to move on uh, quite quickly. Our next question is from Rose uh, Kobusinge, environmental change graduate at Oxford University. Now, Rose, I know you've got several questions, but can we take your first question? And if we have more time at the end, then we'll take your, your other questions. Uh, Rose, take it away. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to listen to these great stats and uh, reading through the, the report, which I find really amazing. Uh, but I only find something that is missing on, on the side that I really care about. I feel like the human aspect is missing a lot in the report there. And that is why uh, my question, one of my questions is like, LDCs have witnessed developed countries grow by relying on fossil fuels. And the emissions are still rising in the developed countries. And now LDCs do not have enough resources or capacities to actually rad radically transition to our renewable energy. And now I'm wondering, how do you think a fair and just transition from fossil fuel could look like, or how is that possible? Thank you so, so much. Oh, sorry, have you got more, Rose? Sorry. Yeah, I can ask one more question. And um, so the other one is, are on the youth and I would like to know uh, what strategies have been put in place to ensure that there's transformative inclusion rather than tokenistic inclusion of young people, especially from marginalized and indigenous communities uh, in decision making in science and other influential uh, positions. Rose, we'll just deal with the first question um, and, then, and then hopefully if we have some more time at the end, we'll, we'll deal with your, your, your second question. Um, and when you say LDC, uh, I, I see you, you mean uh, least developed countries? Yes, yes. Correct. So uh, we've got um, Dr. Aranaba Gosh, would you like to take this one? Thank you, Rose, for your question. And uh, I'll try to get to it in, in uh, part of my role is as a member of the UN Committee for Development Policy, whose mandate is to look at the development prospects and progress of the least developed countries. And the way I would frame this is that if you look at the pandemic, uh, which was a once in a century event, uh, we've ended up in a situation where more than 100 million people have gone back into poverty. Um, so all the progress that you make over decades suddenly gets unraveled when a super shock hits you. The climate crisis is a bigger super shock because it's not a once in a hundred year event. It's going to happen more, and it's going to happen more frequently and with greater intensity. And therefore, increasing the resilience of uh, lives and livelihoods and the overall macroeconomic conditions of the least developed countries has to be at the heart of whatever we get out of Glasgow and beyond. Because unless the climate negotiations deliver a deal for real sustainable development, we are actually uh, making sure that not the culprits, but the victims of climate change are bearing the costs. Now, how do you do that? Number one, we will have to create a resilience cushion, an insurance cushion for these vulnerable countries that are impacted by these super shocks. A portion of the IMF special drawing rights can be allocated towards creating an insurance cushion that is completely missing right now. Number two, we need to, as you mentioned, the youth, we need to focus on rapid skilling of the, the youth in the least developed countries to look at the potential for distributed energy rather than large scale infrastructure, which allows uh, you know, peri-urban areas and rural areas to tap into literally tens of billions of dollars of market size in using distributed energy for driving livelihoods. And number three, we will have to make sure that larger institutional investment starts putting developing countries and LDCs on their radar. And that's not gonna happen unless large institutional capital is de-risked. Today, this problem with climate finance is that it looks at only project financing rather than uh, strategic de-risking. And unless we do that, we don't reduce the cost of capital. So developing countries, including LDCs, keep putting out larger and larger targets, but the money does not flow where the sun shines the most. If you can start solving for these systemic challenges, then maybe LDCs will have a hope in confronting these super shocks that, climate, that the climate crisis will present them with. 
Thank you, Dr. Aranaba. Um, and, and if I may, do, do we also have to hold um, the developed countries to account from um, the decisions that were made during Paris in order to have a global green fund uh, where, where there would be money that was there to help least developed countries um, to change to a greener economy as well. So I think that's really important, that, um, an important part of the process of COP26. Um, so, okay, we've got a Donna Hume here, whose uh, question, she's head of campaigns at the C40 group. Donna. Hello, thank you, and, and, and thank you so much for all of the, the presentations. Um, I'm from C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group. It's a coalition of 100 of the world's biggest cities acting on climate change, including doing some of the, the actions that some of the speakers were just talking about, cleaning up air in cities around the world. Um, my question was, um, C40 mayors are already committed to science-based targets to achieve their fair share of halving global emissions by 2030. But at the moment, in the context of the COP moment that we've been discussing today, we really want to move the political focus to even more immediate action to reduce emissions. Um, we think that one of the biggest tests right now for a government's climate credentials is whether or not the trillions that's being spent in economic stimulus is supporting the investment we need to deliver a green and just transition and consequently what's going to happen to their emissions in the next 12 months. Um, you know, can we have financial budgets that align with annual carbon budgets um, that are commensurate with, with keeping temperatures to 1.5? And so my question was, um, what are the kind of the, the, the experts here views about um, and messages about what action we need to deliver, um, not by 2050, not by 2030, but in the next 12 months? And um, specifically, I was wondering if Sir David had a um, more on kind of how could we or what steps we need to take in the next 12 months to, to start ending the use of coal, oil and gas quickly and fairly. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Um, so, David, would you like to kick us off here? I'm happy to kick us off. I'm sure others will come in, uh, perhaps Laura. Uh, what, what I would like to say is that uh, your, your question is absolutely spot on. How do we speed this up? Uh, and it, it is a message that needs to be got through that any investment, and I'm talking about banks, I'm talking about all of the investment community, any investment around the world into fossil fuel futures is not going to be an, a good investment. In other words, it's going to become a stranded asset because the world is moving away from fossil fuels very rapidly. So I think the first message to get across is to the investment community to make that absolutely clear that all investments need to be let me say 21st century proof so that you invest in infrastructure you're investing into the future let's make sure it is a green future you're investing into thank you sir david um and professor professor abraham abraham um, yes. oh, sorry <laughs> professor abraham sorry pardon me all good <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so um, echoing uh, Sir David there, um, I think it's really important that, um, that indus industries and companies um, look at every decision that they make about sort of new infrastructure as an opportunity to, to make this transition. And if it's not viewed that way, then what it, what it does is actually lock us into a longer term reliance on, on um, fossil fuels. Um, so, so we need to be looking at that. Much of the technology that we need for this transition already exists and is already affordable. And so it's also making those decisions to move as quickly as we can with those technologies uh, because we have a finite budget. And so the sooner that we can do things um, in, in any single year, um, that buys us more space for the changes down the track that are going to be harder. And there are going to be new technologies that we need to develop and we're going to need time to develop them um, so that they're scalable. Um, and so the, the sooner that 
that we can um, that we can put in place the things that already exist and already work, um, the more space we'll buy ourselves for, for doing that. Um, in terms of the part of the question as to, to how do we get the governments to help incentivize this economically, um, I think that's a, a quite a challenging one, particularly like when I when I look at the, the Australian situation that I talked about um, beforehand. Um, but I think there again it's um, an increasing sort of pressure and showing that um, we're going to move um, regardless of um, whether those um, government incentives are in place or not. Um, and then um, and then hopefully we also see progress through the COP process. Thanks. Thank you, Professor Abram. I, Abram, and I, I think it's it's about acting now. No, no more messing about. We've got to get things going. Um, Professor Laura Anadon, uh, you want to take a, a, a go at this as well, don't you? Uh, yes, thank you for the question, Donna. And well, Nerili already said a few of the things I wanted to say, so I'll, I'll make some comments, comments about the local level and city level jurisdictions, because one of the challenges, as I'm sure uh, Donna probably knows more than me, uh, is that uh, you have some things that need to be done at the national level and some of the really big things need to be done at the national level. But of course, cities can do a lot. And I know that many cities around the world, including your group, are, doing, are putting in place uh, steps to use their power, which involves procurement, which involves uh, transport, which involves zoning. And these are all of the things that we absolutely need to do because uh, when we think about things like electrifying uh, the transportation sector, when we think about uh, incentives to uh, train people to have the right skills, to install heat pumps, uh, you know, community college and these sorts of organizations have a major role to play. So I, you know, I guess adding to one of the comments that Nerili started with in her opening presentation, there's a really essential role for action right now to get as quickly as possible the technologies that we know we need, that the heat pumps, the charging stations, uh, you know, procurement of electric vehicles and, and, and other approaches, more efficient appliances. Uh, at, while at the same time, again, let's not forget that, again, as we've all been saying, there are some technologies that are still not yet commercially viable, as, as cheap as we need to. So we do need to be investing right now in developing um, technologies and deploying them for hard to decarbonize sectors. Thank you, Laura. Um, Professor, York, uh, Professor Rockstrom, I think you want to have a go at this one as well. Yeah, just just a very short compliment to, to these um, very comprehensive inputs. I mean, one of the proposals in our report launched today emphasizes actually on one of the very fast track accelerators, which is a price on carbon. The European Union's price is now over 60 euros per ton of carbon dioxide. The ETS one is starting to bite. Coal fire plants are being shut down as we speak. They're shut down overnight. It goes so fast. It's incredible. If we would have a uh, you know, a carbon price of at least 50 US dollars, you would see just like a like a bomb mat of, uh, of major impacts across economies in the world. Secondly, I mean, you've all seen the mapping from Oxford University of the 16.6 trillion of COVID recovery investment. I mean, that's phenomenal. Compare that to the global climate fund that we now need to fill up in Glasgow, which is only 100 billion. I mean, it's, it's a pathetic number which we're not even able to gather together to support developing countries transition compared to the trillion, 16 trillion, 16,000 billion that we're putting on COVID recovery. Glasgow must be a serious discussion of aligning a larger share of those trillions also for the recovery process. I think it's a question of, of pushing very hard on, on finance. Thank you, Professor Rockstrom. Um, we'll move on to our next question, uh, and thank you also, uh, Donna, for asking that question. Um, it's time for us to move on to our next uh, question, which is uh, from Ben Spencer at the Sunday Times. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Um, could the panel give me an assessment, give us an assessment of how likely COP is to be a success? I mean, this will be the 26th COP. We've only really had one success in those you know, at Paris, and it feels like this week um, the global leaders are engaged in the game of expectation management after a lot of hype earlier in the year. Is that just playing games? Is it strategic? <laughs> are things really looking as bad as um, the politicians say? Uh, a great question there, and um, I mean, I think there is a lot of uh, hype and hope and expectation from COP. Um, I see uh, Professor Mark 
you've got your hand up for this one. Ben, as always, a, a great question. I think the first thing to realize is this COP can't actually fail. And that's the first thing we have to take away because, of course, with the Paris Agreement and that incredible agreement, we have a baseline. We actually have an international agreement. What we want is to increase the ambition and accelerate the decarbonization of the world. And actually, I think I'm quite optimistic because if you think about the last 12 months, we've had the EU and the UK all declaring they're going to go net carbon zero by 2050. You then last autumn, you had China, the premier basically saying, well, we understand that our emissions will peak hopefully before 2030, but we will hit net zero by 2060. And then the US have said, we're gonna half our emissions by 2030, and then we're gonna hit net zero. So you have the three largest economic powers in the world all saying we're going to go to net zero. And I think the interesting thing is then we're seeing more and more announcements from other countries also trying to match that. So for me, I think the important things, and Lavania summed this up really, really well, which is the ambition of COP26 is to match all countries to the Paris Agreement to get that net zero as quick as possible. So all the pre-announcements are great, it's just really can we tie that into an agreement and get that solidarity between, as Lavania said, 197 countries all pulling in the same direction. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, it's, it's highlighting the fact that this COP can't fail is just so important. Um, Pro Professor Rajamani, would you like to say something on this? Uh, um, thank you, Ade, and thank you for that great question, Ben. And just to add uh, to what Mark has already said, I think it's a question really of how you define success. And if you define success as um, resolving the global climate change problem uh, next week, no, we're not going to be doing that. Uh, so it's a, really a question of um, taking steps towards resolving the problem and sending the right signals from the COP. And as Mark is, I'm also very hopeful that we will do that. And one of the ways that we can do that and we can achieve that is to anchor some of the sort of larger um, uh, commitments and targets and announcements that states have made for longer term uh, sort of net zero mid-century uh, goals into the COP process. So there's greater transparency around these so that we can actually generate greater credibility and accountability and fairness around these, which will then set us on a path uh, to 1.5 degrees, but also set us um, uh, set us on a uh, on on a path to actually feeling some sense of ownership of what we're doing, all 197 countries, because the COP ultimately, the UN negotiating process is the only process that actually has all states at the table. So I think we need to give it that respect and, and command, and because it commands tremendous legitimacy. And that's what we can expect from it. But as I said, we can't expect it to resolve the climate crisis in the next two weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Lavinia. And uh, Sir David. Yes, I just wanted to come in and say, uh, ben, don't forget the moment of the COP and the things that aren't going to be officially decided at the COP meeting. And I give you a few examples of what has happened in the past. I've already mentioned feed-in tariffs beginning in Germany, spreading across Europe and into California, which has produced this amazing fact that the cost of renewables is now very competitive around the world uh, for putting electricity onto the grid. That was never part of a COP agreement process. That's part of the COP moment, delivering a process that has caused an enormous transition. More than 50% of new electricity supply across the whole world is now from renewables. That's what emerged from that process. So I just want to emphasize, let me, let me give you another example. Mission Innovation is a program initiated outside the COP at, at Paris on the first day of Paris when the heads of governments of 22 countries agreed to combine together and, and create a fund of funds to spend $30 billion per annum on, of public money on research and development into all of the post-fossil fuel technologies needed. It has now been agreed that that fund will be increased to $40 to $45 billion a year by 2025. Now, this is all outside the COP process, but I think, Ben, what I would like to have from the media is much more of a focus on these things because they can emerge much more quickly. The COP process needs 197 nations to agree. That's extraordinarily difficult. 
And so these moments that we're talking about now can really be a key to future development away from uh, these problems. Absolutely fascinating, Sir David. Um, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think the moment is almost as important, if not more important than the process. Um, thank you for that question, Ben. Um, our next question is from Scott McCauley, founder of Anthropocene Architecture um, and the, the a rise, a Re, Reba Rising Star. Scott, are you here? Yeah, an absolute pleasure and thank you very much for having me. I'll just set the kind of context of the built environment because that was also something that I would have loved to seen a little bit more of in that report. So I'll set a really hyper brief context and just ask my question, which is sort of two in one. So when action on the climate emergency is discussed internationally, the impacts of our built environments and the construction industry that builds, demolishes and maintains it are an elephant in the room. This is regularly unaddressed, despite it accounting for 38% of global greenhouse gas emissions and 50% of resource use. So the built environment has had and continues to have tremendous impacts on life on Earth and the landscapes and ecosystems around us. Our buildings intersect with climate, health, housing and spatial justice and every single one of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. 80% of the buildings we're using in 2050 are already standing up today. So de de decarbonizing these buildings and future-proofing them can be looked at in two ways. So this is either our biggest, great greatest impending inconvenience or the biggest opportunity that we have to put tested methodologies and technologies. So technologies we already have today and that we know work to use and in the process transform lives, lift people out of fuel poverty, raise standards of living, bolster public health strategies around the world because 40% of the money we spend on healthcare is because of our built environments and to create hundreds of thousands, if not millions of well-paid green jobs as part of a global just transition. So my question's in two parts. So where does the policy that shapes what is built, where it is built, how it is built, should it actually be built and what it's built from, as well as uh, facilitating the stewardship and an upgrade of existing buildings to accelerate shift towards a circular economy and the regulations that ends the designed obsolescence of our buildings and the use of materials that are just harmful, that mandate the disclosure of the operational performance of buildings. Uh, regulations actually regulate the whole life carbon emissions because this is currently unregulated and foster the use of evidence-based methodologies such as passive house and the living building challenge. So really just to clarify, where does policy and regulation around the creation and stewardship of our built environment fit into your thinking in terms of COP outcomes? How does where we live and how we live, how we create it, design it, how, where does that come into COP? Because Thank that's you. a huge part of this thing. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Scott. Thank you, Scott, for that question. Um, I'll throw this over to, to Mark and then Sir David. So I think the first thing to say is, of course, this doesn't come into the COP process. I mean, because this is about international negotiations. <clears throat> what it does come into is how nations actually try to decarbonize as quick as possible. It is also where the C40 are doing some amazing work, actually working with sort of like cities to try and urbanize remember we're going to have another two billion people that we need to house and look after by the year 2050 and i will say two things one we need really good regulation that actually supports the built environment make sure the houses and offices are built in the best and most environmental way however i also say we need enforcement so there are incredible building regulations in many countries however they're not enforced so I, there was a wonderful uh, conversation after Hurricane Sandy. The uh, New York mayor brought in a certain group and said, look, your houses, your houses are fantastic. They, they, the roof stayed on. What did you do? And they turned around and said, we built to code because they actually followed the law, whereas everybody else didn't. Same in the UK. We have very good building regulations, except they're not enforced. So I think it's two things. It's having good, thoughtful regulation. And there were some brilliant policymakers and legal experts, many on this uh, sort of call, who are very good with that. But we also then need enforcement to make sure that companies and actually individuals actually do what they're supposed to. And I think it's those two things that we need. Thank you, uh, Mark. So David? I, I, have, I have just 
a couple of comments to add to what Mark has just said. First of all, yes, we, we need a good regulatory process with good follow-up, of course. But I would add to the regulatory systems uh, that we should see in the future no further use of concrete and steel without the carbon dioxide captured and stored from the process of manufacturing the, the cement and the steel. In other words, let's put incentives on towards creating uh, buildings that are renewable in their construction as well as in their functioning. So the functioning, I think, we all know a key to the future is going to be producing electricity, which has no carbon in production in its development. Um, and so in terms of cities, we need to look very carefully at air conditioning and cooling. And all of this, Scott, as you said, is already in the marketplace, but we need regulatory systems to drive them through the market. Thank you, Sir David. Um, Scott, I hope that answered your question. Uh, we're going to move on swiftly to next question from Professor Nick Cowan, Emeritus Professor of Atmospheric Science. Nick, can you unmute yourself, please? <clears throat> so um, yesterday I uh, caught up really with your um, your group and found out what you're doing. So um, I'm, I'm a learning curve. Um, so, I was very impressed by the report. Uh, I think that um, I have some comments on timescales. So um, in relation to the fourth and fifth um, climate commitments, which are related to GHG removal and Arctic um, sea ice uh, rest restoration, these are, I think you'll agree, are multi-decade goals, uh, yet we face overshoot of greenhouse gases well beyond 500 and uh, equivalent uh, CO2 and transient temperature rise beyond 1.5 within the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, so that, that's not talking about what happens at the end of the century, but it's what happens in the almost immediate future. And uh, therefore, uh, we have really a bit of a gap in between. And that has immediate implications for national economies and for some even their, their near-term survival. So my question is, shouldn't CCIG be pushing for really more strongly for drastic cuts in methane emissions as a way to effectively remove GHG. Um, so if, if you reduce the, the em methane emissions, then effectively, yeah, because it's a short-lived uh, greenhouse gas, if you stop emitting it, then you're effectively removing it from the atmosphere rather rapidly compared to the way in which you can remove longer-lived greenhouse gases like CO2. So shouldn't we be doing that, uh, pushing very hard for that in order that we can fill in that intermediate timescale during which so much damage will occur in the next couple of decades and leaving room for the development and upscaling of the two uh, uh, issues that you described in, in uh, Commitments 5 and 6. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Nick. Um, I'll go to Sir David on this one first, please. Yes, I, I, I just want to say, uh, Nick, that you're absolutely right. Uh, the greenhouse gas levels are far too high, which is why we have this mantra of three R's. Uh, yes, reduce greenhouse gas emissions as rapidly as possible. Uh, we have to remove excess greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere. And then we have to also see that we keep the Arctic Circle covered with ice. But your, your point about removal of methane is an under-discussed item. Mm -hmm. And here at Cambridge, we are looking very closely at methane removal procedures. For example, where does the methane come from? It's not just oil, gas and coal recovery. It's also, for example, uh, disused coal mines. And of course, in, in Britain, we have a vast number of now disused coal mines since we stopped using coal. And those coal mines, all emit methane and we're looking at technologies that we can use to capture the methane directly from the coal mines there's a there's a more difficult situation as as oil gas and coal recovery go go down we would expect emissions of methane to diminish as well but there are losses of methane from other sources uh, we know that up in the Arctic Circle region, the amount of methane in the permafrost is so big that that provides an enormous threat to humanity as the Arctic Circle continues to unfreeze. And then 
we, we have methane from food production. And this is very much driven by the increased livestock being currently held on farms because of the increased demand from the rapidly growing middle class around the world demanding to have eat more meat. But there's another side to the, the farming, which is uh, methane production from rice. So we have a major problem to bring methane levels down to zero. And I, I would say the most difficult area is uh, areas are both the farming and what is happening in the Arctic Circle region. Thank you, Sir David. I think um, the, the reduction of methane is such an important topic and it's something that we do not talk about enough. Uh, I can see Johan, you have your hand up there. Yes, um, so I, I, I totally agree with, with uh, Sir David's response here. It's really important to have a, a multifaceted approach on methane, we tend to kind of tilt over in giving all, accusing red meat ruminants as the only cause of methane um, emissions. They are a significant portion, one third roughly. But as as Sir David points out, just just the flaring and and the leaks from from gas is is almost a quarter. So so it's a multifaceted challenge. But let let me share with you the most important part which I am really disappointed about that it's always, always omitted. The only reason, the only reason why the IPCC 100 plus GCM climate models gives us roughly 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide remaining in the fossil fuel based carbon dioxide global carbon budget, the net zero point by 2050. The only reason why the models give us that is that they assume, assume that the methane pathway will follow roughly the same pace of, addiction, of, of emission reductions. So it's not as if we can just, just reduce methane and go slow on carbon dioxide. Methane is moreover a, a short-lived climate forcer compared to carbon dioxide, which is a long-lived climate forcer. And by the way, it's exactly the same with nature car carbon sinks. Many times, many believe that, well, now we can do nature-based solutions and plant trees if we're not able to deliver on fossil fuel reductions. Well, sorry, the only reason why the models give us 400 gigatons of carbon dioxide in the carbon budget is that the models assume that the nature carbon sinks will be successfully in place and deliver. So we have already factored them in. We factored in reduction in methane. We factored in reductions in all the other greenhouse gases. We factored in carbon sinks in nature. And that is what gives us a little soft landing space of 400. If it hadn't been for nature and reductions in all the other greenhouse gases, the budget would have been lost already. So it's, you know, it's however we twist and turn this, we have to go all in on all greenhouse gases. Love that, love that, um, Johan. We have to go all in. We can't do this half-hearted if we want to create a safer planet for us all. Now, time is running short, so I really want to move on to the next question, which is from um, Clem Cowton, Director of External Affairs at Octopus Energy. Clem, take it away. Hello, thanks so much. Um, as we move to both electrify heat and transport and decarbonize the grid using largely variable and distributed renewables, uh, it will be possible and necessary for citizens to help drive a cleaner and more efficient grid by shifting demand, particularly from heat pumps and EVs, to times when the power is generated by local renewables and there is less demand on the network. However, at the moment, the price signals mostly do not exist for this, certainly in the UK's energy market, to incentivise and reward them for doing so. And so the market does not incentivise innovative products and business models that help lower the carbon footprint of the grid. In CCAG's opinion, what needs to be done by governments to enable efficient and resilient grids that empower citizens to help accelerate electrification and renewables penetration? Thank you, Clem. Uh, who would like to take this question? Um, I see uh, Laura, you, you've got your hand up there. Yes, um, thank you, Clem. This is a really important question. And it's, of course, a very different, difficult question because different countries, different jurisdictions have different electricity market rules. So I, but I think a, a, a principle that, um, that electricity regulators and policymakers trying to steer this transition to increase the electrification of transport and uh, residential heating, uh, residential energy consumption, and you mentioned, is to introduce 
uh, new mechanisms, new price signals, uh, new um, business models. Um, you know, sometimes in, at, at the beginning, sometimes it will be niche markets. So in, in small um, in small sections uh, and small uh, demonstration projects. Um, to make sure that we maintain reliability and all of the other concerns that electricity regulators are interested in. I know that Ofgem has been doing the innovation sand pits and, and these sorts of things. I think we need more of these and also more uh, bigger incentives and larger uh, trials uh, to make sure that we can deploy this. Uh, one of the things we mentioned in the previous report is that we needed to adopt more flexibility in policy making and more experimentation um, uh, to make sure that we learn from these things and we can grow them without some of the adverse effects. So this is a crucial area. And again, I think it's very hard to say specifically for the whole world or you know, different jurisdictions what should be done, but this is an area where we need much more policy action, experimentation and incentives. Thank you, Laura. I see uh, uh, Professor Kiyi has got his hand up as well. Thank you very much for the question. Um, the, uh, to answer the question what the government should do, to uh, definitely, I think the government should uh, uh, invest and encourage incentivize the, uh, the research for building uh, a stronger and more resilient power system. The, uh, just to give you one example, this year, the, the power demand for uh, here in China has increased about 14%. Uh, due to the fact that a lot of the export uh, increase, you know, it, it export into other, other countries, ma manufacturing industry is consuming a lot of more power. And uh, the, it has come to a point that in various parts of the, uh, the power uh, network, the, the, the whole grid, they have to uh, have, uh, you know, power off for uh, certain industries even for household usage so this is uh, this reflected the uh the difficulty for the transient period going uh from a, you know very much a coal based uh power system to um, uh, uh to a renewable energy dominated system and uh, in order to doing this the government is really putting in a lot of uh, uh investment in building the power system. At the same time, the uh, development of the, this, the so-called new power system, you know, with this more intelligent and smart power grid and uh, internet-based and th th this kind of thing is really, really... Oh, I think we've lost you there, um, Professor Key. Um, okay. We'll work on getting um, Professor Key back, but um, Clem, I hope uh, that some of that has gone some way to answering your 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 question. And thank you very much for ask, asking the question. Um, we've, we've not got that much time, um, so I'm going to quickly move on to uh, Alessandro uh, uh, Meguins, and that's a, and he's uh, from Fevura. Alessandro, can you turn your uh, mute button off, please? Thank oh, you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you all. Um, what could be the best scenario for COP26 results? Um, on the other hand, which concrete re results the, co the scientific, scientific community expects from COP? Uh, who would like to take this one on? So uh, I think uh, Lavinia, I see you have your hands up. I'm sure there are certain others who could jump in on this as well. Uh, but just quickly, I think in terms of concrete results from the UN negotiating process, we need the Paris rulebook completed and fully operationalized. Um, we, uh, from the moment that COP6 represents that many of us have been alluding to, we need, uh, we need commitments and a clear signals that we're going to be on a pathway to 1.5 degree uh, uh, temperature limit. And this has to come with substantial increases in finance and support for developing countries. So that's the best case scenario. That's what we hope will emerge from the COP. 
Thank you, Levin. Yeah, I, I think we've also got time for one more question. And I think it was a supplementary question from Rose. Rose, are you still there? had to go i think at the oh okay okay rose as uh has gone um but it was uh i i think it was her question on getting more of the younger generation um uh back into um in, in into uh, into climate activism um I, I can find that question quickly if we uh have time um so Ade, it was about making sure that indigenous people yes. and the yes. youth of the world are actually fully involved in the discussions within the UN at the COP meeting and beyond. And I think there's some experts on here that could really speak to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you for that, Mark. Um, Lavinia, I see you have your hand up. So just quickly on that, just in terms of the COP process, the COP already recognizes the constituency of young girls, as it were, uh, young people and youth uh, activists, and they do have a voice at the uh, UN negotiating process. But beyond the UN negotiating process, there are, of course, several ways in which they can be integrated into sort of uh, decision making, and I'm sure others on the panel can speak to that. But uh, but I think the youth uh, are actually, you know, have tremendous agency and they're driving change today. Many of the climate cases around the world are actually being litigated by children and uh, young adults, uh, including the Portuguese children's case before the European Court of Human Rights, which is against 33 European nations for taking inadequate climate action. Um, there are cases in uh, in Korea run by youth claimants. There's cases in Australia. Um, there are numerous cases, and actually, the the most significant case that came out this year from the German Constitutional Court, Federal Constitutional Court, was uh, was by uh, was litigated youth claimants, and it spoke to the intergenerational unfairness of. Uh, postponing climate action uh, to um, to later periods of time, which would uh, result in uh, freedom constraining and rights constraining uh, sort of uh, rights constraining for future generations. So, um, so I think uh, youth, of course, can be significantly integrated and mainstreamed into decision making today. But they're also um, leading the change and they're claiming power. <laughs> we don't need to give it to them. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're they're definitely part of the moment. Um, as Sir David was talking about. I'd like to hear from Dr. Fat Fatima Denton on this. Uh, have you any uh, views on this one, Doctor? Um, perhaps just to say a word on the indigenous aspect. Um, I was in a meeting um, a couple of days ago here in Ghana um, where um, indigenous leaders were talking about their responsibility um, in terms of COP26, but also in terms of the impacts of climate change. Um, I think one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that uh, in as much as we are prioritizing the importance of reducing emissions, um, we also have to look at other aspects of the climate crisis. Um, and this is around governance, um, which I think it's a very important aspect. So indigenous leaders have, uh, you know, they've, they've got soft power, but they also have tremendous authority um, in terms of how they can work with communities, especially with regard to adaptation processes. And what we're noticing also is that given the speed and the rate of the impacts, um, the knowledge related to indigenous you know the knowledge that indigenous leaders have and the knowledge that indigenous communities have um, that knowledge has been slowly eroded in some ways um, in other words we need a little bit more capacity to match the speed and the rate of climate impacts so we do need to come back to indigenous knowledge systems um, to be able to see how best we can support um, the climate process and we don't necessarily have to focus too hard on mitigation alone, because there are very important adaptation priorities as well and structural problems that are very relevant um, to um, developing countries and indigenous leaders, indigenous knowledge systems have a key role to play. So I would just like to say that um, it's important that we do not lose sight um, of the importance of indigenous systems. Uh, because this is about values, it's about culture, um, it's not just about the rapid 
you know, reduction of um, emissions, but it's about how you take people along with you. Um, and I sometimes get a sense that we are speeding so much in the direction of mitigation that we're forgetting that we need to take people along with us. Um, and those people come from communities um, and who best to sort of talk to their communities than the indigenous leaders and the knowledge systems that they have acquired over, over generations. So very important that we don't lose sight. I mean, scientific knowledge doesn't have to compete with indigenous knowledge. You know, th there is a need for these two to come together. There's some kind of calibration of knowledge and we've seen it happen. There's a very nice story about the Kenyan rainmakers and how we've seen, you know, the Met Agency being able to produce knowledge and the Kenyan indigenous leaders came up with their own knowledge and they were able to put this together and increase the productivity of agriculture. So these two, there could be a marriage, if you like, of indigenous knowledge systems and scientific um, um, knowledge, but we, we can't um, leave one aside um, and then focus on the other. We need to find ways of improving the knowledge that we have, but we also need to count on the importance of um, um, traditional knowledge systems that have been acquired over time. Thank you, Dr. Fatima. I mean, some really, really important points made there, you know, and the fact that the science is important, but it's only important because of the way it affects us as human beings. So we have to take that into account. Unfortunately, we need to conclude it there as that's all we have time for today. Big thank you to our CCAG members for such a crucial discussion on what we need to see from COP26. And as ever, a very big thank you to those of you watching at home and to everyone who joined today to ask such vital questions. If you want to learn more about the work that CCAG are undertaking, you can find out more information on the website at ccag.earth. You can also follow the group on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and you can send any additional questions that you may have for CCAG on their social media pages too. Thank you once again for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing how COP26 progresses and the crucial policy agreements that arise from it. You can join us at the next meeting on Thursday, the 25th of November. Take care and see you then. The situation with climate change is clear. The crisis is not being managed in the way it needs to be managed at the moment. I am Sir Dave King. I have set up a climate crisis advisory group the group represents the international experts on climate change to be available to the public, to policymakers, and to the media around the world. We need action now. What we as humanity do over the next five years will, in my view, determine the future of civilization.